Welcome to the Just Write Show, where you'll explore the world of the written word. From books to blogs, sales copy to screenplays, emails to essays, and everything in between. You'll discover the tips, tricks, and tactics the most successful writers in the world use every day. And now, here's your host, Travis Cody. Welcome to another episode of the Just Write Show. Today, my guest is Kevin Rogers, who spent years traveling the country as a stand-up comedian working with the circuit with now famous comics like Chris Rock, Louis C.K., Billy Gardell, and many more. After a decade performing comedy, Kevin retired from the road and married the love of his life. He also discovered a new professional passion, direct response sales copywriting. He spent 10 years as a freelance copywriter, writing and achieving the sales copy for high-profile and insanely profitable product launches with some of the industry's top producers. Things changed when Kevin discovered how a simple joke formula could be used as a powerful marketing hook and began teaching it to marketers as the 60-second sales hook and released a book by the same name. The success of that book led Kevin to create Copy Chief which is a private community-based forum and copy training center where talented copywriters partner with value-driven product creators, content providers to produce forward-thinking ad campaigns. After 12 years away from comedy, Kevin recently returned to the stand-up stage, developing 25 minutes of new material over 60 days and performing it for an audience of 2,000 people, accepting a challenge to open the show for his longtime friend, Billy Gardell of Mike and Molly fame. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show yeah brother damn that's that's impressive that is that's impressive stuff right there i'm i'm amazing (laughs) you are (laughs) i i gotta say when you think of two paths that don't necessarily seem like they connect it would be comedy and copywriting and yet you have done it yeah I would say I've seen a lot of parallels, actually, but, you know, you're right. It's not common, but but less because of the skills needed between those two things and more those things don't connect because of the type of people who excel at one or the other. Right. This is true. This is true. And so I always make a joke that but in a lot of ways, comics and copywriters are very similar. Like, here's my joke. I say, uh, having dinner with those two different groups of people is very similar in regards to there's a lot of loud cursing and, you know, body humor. But with copywriters, you're in a much nicer restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) See, for a while there, I I, I was... uh developing the conspiracy theory that to actually be a top copywriter you had to also know how to play the guitar yeah because, well, I'm, pr- I'm proof that that's not the case so uh, see because if you look at it we have john carlton doberman dan john benson david yeah. garfinkel david deutsch all of them play guitar uh, yeah. so uh, that for a while there i was like that's how you get into the inner circle but fortunately if we look at Hollywood, though, who, who are the guys that get the chicks? It's the rock stars and the comedians. So I guess it fits perfectly. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. I, I think the, the, the comics can get the chicks after the show. Keeping them is another story. And I was like, the, you realize quickly when you get to know comics that, wow, there's a lot of darkness behind that, that witty repertoire. What do you call that? What's that word? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, repertoire. There's no word. I don't know. We need to. So we, we could have a whole show friends. just about that concept right there. Mm-hmm. I was having this conversation the other day with someone and, and they were like, oh, I don't know. I was like, come on, Robin Williams. Admitted to being massively depressed all the time. A lot of darkness behind oh, yeah. that. Look how unfortunately how it ended. I, Bill Cosby. <laughs> arguably one of the funniest people yeah. forever and lots of crazy darkness behind there. Now, fortunately, yeah. most comedians aren't that dark, but no, not that dark, th- but th- those, uh, those are the, the shockingly like, Hey, look at the sort of polarity between this. Yeah. I mean, look at Louis CK, for instance. Um, we, we all people in the comedy world knew he was kind of weird, you know, for a long time and the rest of the world shocked by what he did. And, uh, but it's, it's, um, it was a known thing. And uh, he, he's just, if you look at, you know, Louis wasn't hiding how dark and depressed he was. Like his comedy was very honest. Yeah, right. And so absolutely about his, uh, his depression his, and yeah. loneliness and yeah, like addiction to porn and stuff. And, you know, it was, um, and if he, he, I remember he, 
I put on a comedy festival. This is what kind of like transitioned me out of comedy into the the uh, a business world of any kind. It was a friend of mine and I single-handedly from, from his home office uh, created the Chicago Comedy Festival in like 96, 97. And it was a huge success, a big industry event. And we did it for three years. He went on to do like five or six of them. It's incredible that the, the talent we had there, you know, Louis CK, Mitch Hedberg, Doug Stanhope, uh, just legendary comics. And um, I remember Louis said he'll do the festival, but we have to agree to show his film. And he, was, he had this independent film and the film was so dark, dude. It, it was just so, it wasn't funny. It was, it was just dark and depressing. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, all right. I, I, I see what's happening here, Louis, you know? And so, and there's another funny story since this is a show about writing, you'll appreciate this. Of course, you know, Robert McKee wrote the yeah, of course. story. And so I took McKee's story workshop in 99 in Chicago at the then Sears Tower. And uh, I'll never forget, he told this story about comedy writers and that they're the most morose people <laughs> you'll ever meet. He told a funny story about his wife wanted to jazz up a dinner party once. And so she invited comedy writers <laughs> and it just ruined the party. Like they didn't, they didn't look up from their plate. They didn't talk to anybody or, or they wanted to talk about the most depressing stuff. It was hilarious. I was like, yeah, well, you live and learn. <laughs> but they're not, they're not all that bad. Like you said, a lot of comics are really fun to be around, but uh, you know, they're, they're definitely, no, there is definitely a dark energy around. Yeah. Some, I, I, you know, here being here in Vegas, I, there was, um, I, I don't know if I should share a story or not, but I'm going to, I feel it's relevant, but so, so there's, um, do you know, do you know Keith Yaki? No. So Keith Yaki's very big in the uh, marketing world. Uh, he used to do a, a big marketing convention here in Vegas, and, and he's also a really successful real estate investor. And so after I moved to Vegas from LA, I was doing open mics and you know, back in the game and doing it on the side for fun. And, and, and Keith is like headlining at the, the, the Laugh Factory. Mm. And I'm like, when did you start comedy? And he's like, oh, like 18 months ago. Wow. So I'm going, what in the heck? And so he he's he comes in and one of his friends comes into town and he's headlining the Laugh Factory and and he's he kills it, does a great show. And afterwards we go out to dinner and, and his buddy's so depressed. Oh, it's so hard and was this and I've been doing this for twelve years and you know last year's the first year I made more than thirty thousand dollars and you got to pay your dues. And so Keith's like, yeah, well I you know I. I'm going to, I want a headline here at the Laugh Factory. No, no, dude, you just started like two years ago. No way you can do it. Oh, no, I, I actually headlined last weekend. What? <laughs> you can't do that. And so I, I, afterwards I go to Keith. I was like, how, Keith, how did you do that? He's like, oh, well, I, I did some open mics and I, I thought it'd be fun to do the room. So I, I, I come to the Laugh Factory enough. I know who the manager is. And I went up to him and said, hey, can I pay you 300 bucks to do a 20 minute set? And wow. the manager was like, "Yeah, buddy." It's always slipped in three. And I was just looking at going. Fifteen years in L.A. and I never thought to pay my way on stage. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the thing about the the entrepreneurial mindset, right? They, you know, they see they see a wall and go, "Oh, well, where's the door? There's got to be a door," you know. And artists see a wall and want to paint it. You know, <laughs> and they're just they like, if you, keep, if you keep bashing your head in this specific spot, eventually right, right. after two decades, that brick may break through and you yeah. can see the other side. <laughs> and, and, and that's and, and that's the only way through and, and, and you'll have earned it, you know, and that's, yeah, and the, that's the way his this is what this is the way his friend was. His friend right. was so pissed that he was had headlined after only two years. And he's like, it took me 10 years to get there. And then yeah, later when I yeah. found out the reason, I was like, oh, no. OK, hey. But, you know, it makes sense. I, there, I could tell stories about uh, a particular actor who did two small independent films and then suddenly was headlining a uh, – was starring mm. in a $250 million Disney blockbuster tentpole mm. summer movie. And everyone's going, what in the heck? And then I had a friend who was like, oh, yeah, his, his family donated $15 million uh, to wow. CAA's foundation for whatever. And 
magically mm. the guy now is starring opposite A-list actors. Not- yeah, well, they, well, thank God you can't pay your way kids into, into college or anything. Oh, that, yeah. That would, I mean, that would really they, delegitimize. That would really up. mess things up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, so how old were you when you knew you wanted to, to do comedy? Were you just naturally uh, funny and then someday you said, oh, I think maybe I'll get on stage? Uh, kind of, you know, I, I worked, I worked at being funny. I wanted to be funny. And I think rather than being sort of like gifted as a, as a, as a comic, like I would think like a Billy Crystal is that kind of person, you know, uh, he tells us great stories about doing shows in his living room. I, I would, I loved making my mom laugh and she really encouraged it. And so if I did something funny, she would, I look back now and realize she, she would, she would, she would turn it into a bit that I do. Right. And she would have, she'd say, do that thing, that impression for my friend, you know, and then they would crack up and I was like, Oh, this is great. You know? So that was kind of like my first understanding that, Oh, you, you can have little gags you do and people like that, you know? And, uh, and then, so when I was in high school, you know, I was awkward and I was never like the cool kid and I was nervous around girls and things. And so I realized when I could be funny, it would ease all that social tension. It, it helped me find my place socially. And um, I, I, so I was kind of like the funny guy in our group of friends in, in, as, a, as a late teen high school years. And then, um, yeah, when I was like 18, my friends kind of uh, kind of dared me, pushed me to do an open mic. And I, I did it. And um, it's funny, I, I, one of my friends is still a friend. I'm still friends with both, both two guys in particular who uh, helped me prepare my set, that first set. And they did the funniest thing, dude. They, they, they're like, all right, well, run through your routine for us. And, uh, you know, just, just practice with an audience here. And they're sitting on my couch. And they said to each other, whatever you do, don't laugh. <laughs> and they sat there stone-faced. And, 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 no. and it was torture. And I, I got to the end. And, and, and they, they, then they burst out laughing. I'm like, you're jerks. You know, I was so mad. But uh, <laughs> and it was hilarious. But so that was it. And then, you know, it was one of those things, you know, Travis, like you do it. And then, you know, the minute you walk off stage that first time, like that was it. I'll never do that again. Or... You, you won't be able to stop me from doing this more. Yeah. Yeah. So who were some of your big influences then when you, you did it your first time and you said, I want to, I want to give this a shot, obviously Billy Crystal, but were there other comics that you followed yeah. and said, man, if I could kind of do what they do. Yeah. For me, like, especially like later in um, uh, high school years, it was the darker guys. It was, it was Bill Hicks and it was, it was right at the time when those Rodney Dangerfield specials were coming on HBO. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Yeah. Like, yep. That was like what kicked off the eighties explosion, you know, of stand-up comedy. So it was first time anybody'd seen like uh, Seinfeld or um, you sign, well, Seinfeld would probably be on, on the tonight show, but it was like, it was like Jerry and it was Bill Hicks and it was Sam Kennison and these wild comics. And, uh, I remember thinking, so for me, it was like guys like Sam and, and Bill Hicks and kind of uh, uh, Carlin. I always loved Carlin. I like some of the silly people like, um, oh, who's the germaphobe uh, who's on the talent show now? Oh, Howie Mandel. You know, like he was a clearly like a great, great performer. But I liked the guys who, who, who had a, something to say. And so George Carlin has always been my ultimate guy you know mm. uh prior um you know eddie murphy was really big around that time but i always felt like eddie was more of a showman than a hilarious comic he was great on yep. snl but you know anyway so yeah uh but those were the those were the cats for me it was you know carlin hicks kennison people who were like challenging people with their humor uh, that's cool so it sounds like obviously naturally you were a funny guy and you started to get acknowledgement for that. And so that kind of led to more stuff. But once you started 
going, okay, I'm going to start going and trying to do, do this on stage in front of a mic. Did you have a writing process? Did you sit down and formulate ideas and jokes or were you more of a natural, let me just try this thing out. Yeah. My friends like it. You make a note and, and then try that yeah. on stage. It was that totally. I had no, no process, no formula at all. And it's funny because it wasn't until I got into um, copywriting when I, started embracing formulas because you probably know Travis like especially and this was really the rule back in my day me and my friends would you know curse anyone who we, we considered formulaic <laughs> yep right that you, can't, you can't teach someone to be funny you can't sit down and write a joke uh. or you know and also like you don't want to seem predictable like that's right. how we thought of right. it like oh uh, he's real, yeah. like super formulaic meaning you know, there's a certain kind of comics and a lot of the headliners in the clubs were this way where they really weren't that funny. They just would sort of like, they were very good at performing and they, and they were very good at, uh, they had a great cadence and they would train the audience to laugh at the right noises, you know? And I, <laughs> I used to think sometimes it's like, this guy could be talking a different language in like, almost like Roberto Benigni's so funny he could speak pure Italian, like life is beautiful. Like even if you didn't have the sub, uh, the captions, you know, the subtitles, you, you would be dying at that film because he's brilliant, right? His, his cadence, his mannerism. So a lot of the club comics to me were that way. They, they weren't necessarily funny or writing even great jokes. They were just really good at performing the, their comedic cadence. Yep. And so we considered that formulaic and sort of hackneyed and so to me, formulas were, were a, a bad thing. And I almost probably purposely avoided having any kind of formula uh, or, you know, uh, formal process to how I deliver jokes because I wanted to be in the moment off the cuff. All my jokes were some would be long bits. Others would be almost like one liners. And I would just, you know how it is. You just develop where stuff goes through doing it night after night after night. Yep. So yeah, I would totally have a, have a premise and I would uh, maybe practice it a couple times how I wanted the wording to go. Other than that, I would just toss it out on stage. And as you know, man, like the, the audience is the best collaborator, like something about being in the moment and how they react to, to that loose idea. Sometimes you just write the bit on stage and you're like, oh, that one's done. <laughs> that's yep. immediately going into heavy play. Well, so what's fascinating with me about that is that, so Jerry Seinfeld writes, he writes a lot. He's talked about this yeah. a ton, yeah. but I've seen him a few times in some of the smaller venues in, in New York and sometimes in LA. They never announce that he's coming obviously because he's so big people would flood in, but he'll just come in and he comes in with a notebook, <laughs> and he, a notebook yeah. and a recorder. And he just starts going through his notebook I mean, almost literally reading his jokes off. Mm -hmm. And it, and if it doesn't get a laugh, he crosses it off. Yeah. Yeah. And so like his process is I'm just going to write a bunch of stuff. Even after all this time, I'm going to write yeah. a bunch of stuff and then I'm going to go test it. And yeah. I, I contrast that with a story that I heard about George Carlin, where a comedian I knew had the chance to share a cab with him uh, to the airport and he he was they were chatting and and he was talking to carlin about what he did and and Car the comment carlin said was uh, my friend i know with 95 percent certainty that a joke is going to get a laugh before i ever tell it on stage mm. and so he asked carlin about that and carlin he had the process and he understood what triggered laughter and so once he understood what triggered laughter, he was able to write around that. And so for me, when I first started as a comedian, I uh, intuitively, I could make people laugh, but I never really understood what, what was triggering the laughter. And it wasn't until years later that I, I met a comedian who he has a whole, he has a bunch of formulas that he uses just for jokes. And then, you know, you can create whole sets out of them. And he said that he had to do that because he worked on the tonight show for a, a long time and he said if you weren't delivering 40 50 jokes a day then you would get fired and so you had to you had to create a process for being right. able to trigger and so that's when things really started to and it's just like sales copy really you understanding the 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 psychological triggers of persuasion
Right. It's not yeah. that you're gaming anything. It's just you understand what can create an effect. And right. the same thing goes in comedy. There's certain things you can do and, and put things in a certain structure that more often than not will trigger that laugh response. So, That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, so you were on the road for a long time. So I got to ask, what's one of the craziest stories from, from your road dog base? Oh, man, what, what am I willing to share? <laughs> <laughs> And thank God, by the way, there was no social media back then. I, I, I don't know what, what I'd be, have to answer for. But, uh, <laughs> um, geez. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I don't know if this, this is not a, as much a wild story, but it's one of my favorites. And I actually just happened to see this photo in my Facebook, like photo role the other day. It, 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 it's, it's, it's from when I auditioned for uh, Star Search. Remember Star Search was of course, yeah. one of those shows that, you know, if you got on it and, and did well, it could really change your career. And uh, <laughs> so we were in Charlotte and Ed McMahon little, was there, like literally in there, you know, with the team to audition people. So it was a big deal. And they chose all their best comics. This, this uh, I think they're still out there called the Comedy Zone. And they have a bunch of clubs all around the Southeast. And that was where bulk of my work was. And uh, Carrot Top, Scott Thompson, started with them. And I used to work with, with Scott when he, my joke is when he had one trunk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he was a guy who, like, you just watched become famous in real time, you know. He did the, he did the Tonight Show one time and that we couldn't go to the mall after that, right? It was crazy. And so, cause he was so recognizable and everything. And so anyway, uh, they did it in Charlotte because Scott lived there and Scott had been on star search and done really well. And so, and you know, the thing with, with, with Carrot Top was he's, he's a really cool guy. Uh, he's gotten a bit strange, you know, as, as famous people do, but back then <laughs> He was a really normal um, guy, just another comic trying to be good. And he was almost a little like shy and embarrassed about his success. And, but he had money. He was the only guy we knew who had money and he would have these great parties at his house and he would buy dinners. It was cool. And uh, he was a nice guy. So anyway, everybody had this kind of weird love hate thing with Scott because no, nobody liked what he did with the props and everything. And it was our job as comics to like beat him down about that a little bit. And he always took it in stride. Right. And so nothing has changed in 30 years. People, <laughs> every com comedian I know still bashes him for yeah, the props. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he knows <laughs> to which my response is, well, do you have your own theater right. in Las I, Vegas? Yeah. No. Well, there you yeah. go. <laughs> I think he'll sleep. Yeah. Without your endorsement. Yeah. And, and he takes it in stride. He's a, uh, cool guy that way so anyway the I, I, I give that context because i remember ed mcmahon went on stage right and he and he said and da 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 and maybe tonight we'll find the next carrot top and i remember thinking oh hell no <laughs> like it's oh, now no. I, I have to i have to not go along with this just on principle just because he said that you know and uh so the, but the real thing that that pained me travis was I watched all these really good road comics. And now granted, we're, we're, we're gonna follow the rules and, and not swear and do things you can't do on TV. Uh, but when I watched all these comics, these friends of mine that I really respected, these good road, road comics, go up and just be some, something they weren't. It was like watching them do a, a movie audition and the, they had just been handed the script of their own jokes or something, you know? And, and what wow. killed me was the crowd was bored. Here we are, like 300 people in this great room and everybody gets like two minutes or something and, and nobody's laughing because all these comics are too nervous to do their damn set. And so I, I just got- Ed McMahon's Ed McMahon's here and these producers, I just want to get on TV and they just, and so I, at some point, I just it clicked to me. I'm like, screw this. I'm I'm not getting on on uh, on on uh, Star Search, and it, you know, back then I had long hair and I did this kind of rock and roll thing, and I didn't think that was at all marketable. And I was like, man, this is not me. So screw it. I'm gonna go sympathize with this audience, and I'm gonna stop thinking about the perfect set I could do for Ed McMahon, 
and I'm going to do the normal three, two to three minutes that I open with, and I'm going to try to kill the room and screw it. And that's what I did, dude. I, I, I went up and I, I just did my, and I, I swore and I'm not proud that I swore, but I'm proud that I just like, all I cared about was like, I got to give this crowd some relief. <laughs> They're being tortured, you know, by these, <laughs> by these good comics. And so I went up and I kill, I murdered. I, I think I probably had the, one of the best sets of the night, but everybody in the room knew there was no way I, like I was disqualified. <laughs> and I was really proud of that because, uh, I'll never forget this guy who was like an older headliner. He came up to me after the show and he, he said the most obvious thing. He's like, let me tell you something, man. He's like, uh, you are not getting on star search. And I'm like, well, no, no kidding. And he goes, but you were great. And if you keep that up, you'll find your audience. And I was like, thank you, man. Like that's, that's all I was, I think trying to do. So that, that nice. was, that was a, who cares if you get on the show when you're the only guy that made the room laugh? Yeah, well, we, you know, we, the odds of getting on the show anyway, you know, were, were super low. And I just, I don't know, maybe that's indicative of how I thought back then as an artist. And I was still had this sort of like rebellious nature. And I, I probably did sub, subconsciously thwart my own success out of fear or something, you know. Uh, but yeah, I don't regret it. <laughs> you know, that's so funny. You say that I just had, I was having a conversation with another copywriter and he, the conversation was exactly that. He's like, I've been doing all this work. And I realized the reason I'm not successful with my copywriting is because my own fear of success. Yeah. It's legit. Isn't that crazy? It like happens. how, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm sorry, but it, for me, it was a gift that I went through that and had that experience. And then also had the foresight to get out of the business because it wasn't clicking and I wasn't getting picked up by agents or managers and I didn't see any path to success in comedy and I was burned out from the road. Right. And so yeah. I made now the road will fry oh, in. So I, I made the very difficult emotional and logistical decision to end the only career I'd, I'd known uh, and, and successfully did for 10 years and reset my life. But if it hadn't been for that experience, you know, when I came into copywriting, it was like, and I found copywriting, it was like, oh man, like this is my second chance at a thing that I feel uniquely qualified and inspired to do. And I'm not gonna screw it up for the same reasons by, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sabotage myself this time. I'm gonna figure out what is a money skill and how do I get paid for it? And that's gonna be uncomfortable, but I'll figure it out. And, and that was the difference, so. One doesn't happen. So how did you, so how did you discover copywriting? So obviously you, you knew comedy, you were getting burnt out and you wanted something else. So was like, did, did you just stumble into sales copy? Did you know somebody who was a copywriter? Yeah. So I knew a guy who was a direct response junkie and a uh, long, crazy story, but we ended up working at the same company and he, it was funny, dude. Uh, he, I liked him. He was really, uh, really smart guy. And he came into this company. This company had a telemarketing uh, a portion of it. And he was hired to create inbound leads where they'd only done outbound calling. And I watched this guy implement these amazing strategies. And he would go, yeah, it's, that's a Gary Halbert thing. And I'm like, who the hell's Gary Halbert? And I get in the car with the guy to go to lunch or something. And he always had, you know, a tape of like people talking in a room. And I'm like, <laughs> what kind of weirdo listens to like, <laughs> people talk in a room in his car? Like, you like Led Zeppelin or the Stones? You know, like, what do you? <laughs> and uh, he would go, oh, this is the, you know, uh, whatever underground tapes. And I'm like, okay. And anyway, he's the guy who he knew I love to write. And I'd begun to understand selling and, and some persuasion and stuff through working at that company. And he's like, you should look into comedy writing. You might be good at it. And uh, he showed me a sales letter. I thought it was the stupidest, ugliest thing I'd ever seen and couldn't imagine that anybody would ever respond to it, let alone, you know, let, read it in the first place. And, um, but then he started, um, the first thing I wrote, dude, it was, uh, to mock copywriting. I, I basically was like, dude, like this, this is a joke. And so I, I wrote a, a mock, like a, an onion-esque style um, sales letter just to make him laugh. And I gave it to him and he goes, 
he said, I don't know if, how you, your language is on this, but I have to say this right. So he, he read it and he looks at me and he goes, I know you're being a dick, but this is far better than most copy I read every day. <laughs> and, and I was like, and that got my attention. I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. He's like, and, and then I, it's, it's something about when you try to do something, it makes you appreciate it more like guitar, right? It's like you could right. sit and watch somebody wail on guitar and it's like, oh yeah, okay, they do that thing. And you don't appreciate it until you sit down and try to make your fingers do that. And then suddenly <laughs> anybody you watch do it, you have this whole new respect for. And so that, that's what happened there. That's what got my attention trying to make fun of it. And then of course I started reading uh, about it and, and, and studying it. And then it seemed hard. <laughs> <laughs> it still it still seems hard you know uh because there's it is actually hard there's a lot of but it's kind of like your friend with the club it's like does it have to be that hard you know it's i, I got pretty good pretty quick once i had a reason to write you know i i found this about um copywriters even more than comics if someone's going to be a good copywriter they will get good fast and they will usually find success fast. Don't you find that man? Like within two to three yeah. years, they're, they're going to be, they're going to find their groove and, and be doing well. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with, like you said, it's the mindset and probably the biggest shift for me was it's easy to look at a Carlton or a Gary Halbert letter and be like, Oh my God. Uh, and you're like, okay. Yeah. But with the one legged golfer, that's the one everyone goes to. Mm -hmm. but, but Carlton had been writing what 15 years yeah. before he wrote the one legged golfer. It wasn't like he just like popped out and was like, Hey, here's this, this letter. Yeah. And so for me, it was the, the concept of good enough sales copy mm. of, of writing copy. That's good enough that it converts, it breaks even or gets it on the front end or, or does a, the, the average conversion rates. And when I finally accepted it, it's okay to just write good enough copy to start with. Yeah. That that's what really kind of got me going. And funny enough, I think some of my earliest letters probably converted better than some of the stuff later on in my career. Stuff you toil over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah stuff I sweated over and the, but uh, that's the nature of, of the game. So when you got started then, where did you turn to kind of learn about that? Because obviously copywriter isn't, it's a, it's a skill. And I could, you know, I would say that it's a, an art form in its own way. Yeah. And today, I, because of people like you and copy chief, someone can get started and has a resource with, where they can just go to and go, I'm going to go to this place and yeah. learn everything I need. So when you and I got started, there wasn't those resources. So how, where did yeah. you start? Yeah. So yeah. I, um, when I started, there was really the one course, the AWAI course. Right. And um, it was enough to really get me excited. And uh, so the sales letter of imagine yourself waking up on the beach. Yeah. Making yeah, six yeah. figures a year riding from, the, you know, your, yeah. your, your porch. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. The copywriters like, yeah, my neighbors look at me funny because I'm always golfing at 10 in the morning, you know, like and that whole bit was like, oh, and uh, but mostly I had the context of my friend Chris, who had turned me on to it, I think told me it's like, that's a, it's a good course. You should take it, you know. And so I was less interested in the lifestyle, more about the craft. And but, you know, at the end of that course is is it was a good it was a good course but i i didn't see myself going into one of the niches they talk about where you could get paid ten thousand dollars to write a letter just like this you know I, I i wasn't health and finance didn't interest me as much so i didn't sort of like follow their protocol for basically audition for them yeah. um and so i kind of i, I kind of languished for a year or so not knowing what to do with this new passion and i was still working at that company and it wasn't until a friend introduced me to a community, which I basically built Copy Chief around because this one went away years ago. It was M Michael Fortin's copywriting board. I don't know if you were around when that was around. That was quite a while ago. But um, it was that's where I really learned and got my first client and, you know, could every day engage in discussion about marketing and copywriting. And that's when I flourished because suddenly I, I, you know, you learn by engaging, not so much by just taking in information, but, to, but to answer your question and go back, it's kind of funny. There was only that course 
and so once I got into copy, there was still really not courses and things. And so I, I, but there was enough information out there that you could become overwhelmed even then. So I can only imagine what it's like for, for people starting out today. Oh my Tsunami God. Tsunami of information nowadays. And, but, you know, so Clayton Makepeace had the, a blog and uh, there was a couple things. And I remember I, when I was started working, a, a couple times this happened where I'd be like, you know, two thirds of the way through a letter and I'd read a, a, a post by like Carlina Anglay Cole on, on Clayton's blog and what she taught me would completely transform my thinking. And I'd be like, damn it, I have to start this letter over because I can't even, I can't turn it in because I know it's not my best work because now I know this thing, you know? And it was literally costing me weeks of work. And so I realized like, even then, you know, 15 years ago, whatever, I had information overwhelm and I decided, okay, I have to, pick one source. I had read uh, Think and Grow Rich and I loved the, his concept of a mastermind that you could create in your mind, right? And remember that he had Socrates and, and Napoleon and, the, and these people he could have counsel with and feel like he knew them and their, their stories well enough to, to actually hear how they would solve problems and stuff, right? And so I said, I've got to pick one guru and get to know their stuff so well that I feel like they're sitting across the desk for me when I write. And when I get to a crossroads, I can say, what would you do here? And I know how they'd answer. And then I have to turn everything else off. So I, you know, get rid of this overwhelm. And that's what I did. And I, I chose Carlton because he just, like Carlin, like Hicks, he just, his character resonated with me the most i loved how he talked interesting about that you were drawn to the rebel copywriter yeah yeah it's, it's a pattern right and i uh, loved he talked about the travis mcgee novels and he talked about the rolling stones and and i knew he played guitar and loved the blues and uh, i was like this is my guy and so dude I, it was funny uh you know th- there was a few youtube videos of him somebody would grab at conferences or something but uh, this is long before he had simple writing system. I used to go to conferences and I would, all I wanted to talk about with people was John Carlton. And, and, the, and they were like avoiding me after the second day. Like, oh my God, that guy's going to talk about Carlton again. <laughs> you were John Carlton groupie. <laughs> yeah, before I even knew him. And, uh, and I would ask them like, do you have any of his stuff? Like, is there anything? And I remember Rachel Ruffay goes, yeah, I think I have his uh, PDF of his, um, three volume sales letters. It's all his sales letters. I'm like, Oh my God, would you give that to me? And she sent it to me and it was like, Oh my God. And I, I went and I brought it to uh, Kinko's and I had it printed and bounded and you know what I mean? It was like my new Bible. And so it was kind of like being a deadhead and trading bootleg tapes. You, you had to meet people who were also into the same stuff to get, to get the goods back then. Right. Yeah. I mean, what a fascinating story because you said something I think is the, the key to any industry and in success of anything, which is just to, to choose one thing mm-hmm. and just focus on that until you are, are so successful with it that you have room for other things. And you know, that's probably the biggest mistake I see people making today who are trying to get started online or in writing. It's still something I'll fall into from time to time because there's always something new that you want to look at. Right. But look at the guys. So um, Caleb O'Dowd, successful copywriter, and he pretty much was exposed to just Gary Halbert and Carlton. Right. Uh, Ian Stanley. I just decided I was just going to become the number one guy on email. Just one thing. Right. Justin Goff, I'm going to be just the supplement guy. And that there's, there's power in being able to shut out all of the noise and just be like, I don't care about all the other stuff. It's just this one, just this one thing. So what a, that's huge for for people listening. Yeah. Write that down. Take notes. There, there's your key to success right there. It's true, man, because I call it a bat signal talent. It's something we teach in real free life, right? Where in the thing about it is it's twofold. One, one part of it is what you said is, 
Well, the obvious part is that it, it helps you become a specialist. Like if, if somebody asks around, like who writes good supplement copy, the name Justin Goff is going to come up very quickly and <laughs> he's going to get that call, right? Yep. It, for serious clients. And, uh, but the other part of it is it allows you, is what you said, you, you can turn off a lot of the noise and say, I'm just going to study these kinds of controls and maybe I can get Paris Lempropolis on the phone for an hour and just ask him questions about some of his great letters in that niche. And, you know, and it, man, that's when you excel, but it's so counterintuitive to become a specialist. I, I, I have freelancers struggle with this all the time in the program and they're like, but it, you know, just like any business they're like, but won't I be limiting my uh, ability to, you know, have more clients. And it's like, no, <laughs> you'll be you'll stand out as one of the premier experts for the right kind of clients that's the difference yeah it's not it's not that but this is the thing when you become a generalist you're you're constantly hunting for new clients yeah. and when you become a specialist eventually you are hunted exactly right or people are coming you and i mean you experienced that because when i met you you were you were the clickbank guy that's right that's right <laughs> everyone oh, i need something to clickbank go to kevin and his partner yep. those are the guys you go to that's exactly and, right. And I remember when I first met you, you were like, oh, I had a waiting list of like, I think four or five months at that point, might even been longer. Yeah. Uh, because you just, because you would, that was your thing. So, yeah. Well, so today you run what I'm going to call the world's number one community for copywriters. So, what was the inspiration behind creating that? I mean, what a fascinating journey to get where you are. And now you've created this. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. I mean, you know, exactly what it is. It's a, a nurturing community for the downtrodden and disheartened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's, but, but what's cool about that is that we, there really is a positive energy in Copy Chief. That, that's what I love is this interesting dichotomy of it's sort of like we we're talking about with comics. Writers are similar to where there's got to be a little pain to draw from for you to truly empathize with your reader, your prospect, right? Right. And, and a good copywriter has that. And so, yeah, there, there's definitely, it's, it's the land of misfit toys in a lot of ways. And we embrace that, but at the same time, it's not a dark place. And it's also not Pollyanna. We don't pretend that every day is a sunny sky, but I know other copywriting communities and I hear a lot from people that it's a lot of this kind of a bitch fest, you know, and they're always uh, complaining I, about, about majority clients. of the ones I found on Facebook, almost every single one. After yeah. A couple of days. yeah it's, it has nothing to do with sales and copy. It's people griping. I'm like, I don't, yeah. I get this with CNN and MSN. I don't need to, I don't need <laughs> this on Facebook groups on copywriting. Give me exactly. a break. It's like, yeah. And so we, we've just kind of never embraced that. And so anybody who wants that quickly, leaves our community and, and it's just cool people do with supporting each other. And yeah, so I was inspired to do it for a couple of reasons, but I remember the earliest seed of it was, I remember I, when I was sort of like casually coach other writers, um, I would tell them the best way for you to market your services as a copywriter is to do critiques and learn how to do a really good like screen capture critique and you know g give a lot of value in like five or seven minutes and people will see that and naturally want to hire you and that would make a lot of sense to them and i and i would say the bummer is the only place i know where there's a ton of people asking for critiques is the warrior forum and unfortunately at this point the warrior forum was uh, kind of a cesspool, you know, it was yeah. a very yeah. negative place. And, uh, and so I would tell the copywriter, I was like, listen, go in there, find somebody asking for a critique. Don't worry about what anybody else said in the critique, just give your critique, post it up and then leave. <laughs> I was like, make sure, you know, check if you got any messages of people wanting to hire you. But the minute you post your critique, 10 other, you know, uh, hotshot copywriters are going to come tell you why you're wrong and how it's, it's different. And, and, and you don't need all that negativity. And so I, after like the third or fourth time of giving that caveat to people, I was like, man, what if I just created a place that was like that original forum that I got so much value from? And what if I could just recreate that? And it was 
all the best parts of a conference where it's like, you've got great experts helping you, teaching you, they're accessible to answer questions. Everybody's lifting each other up. Clients would come there and get great feedback from pro copywriters and newbie copywriters and, and organically decide to hire some of those copywriters. And that was my simple concept for it. And it worked. It just it turns out you can do that. And, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, opened it almost exactly, um, literally three days from now, August 29th will be six years when I opened the doors uh, to 100 people because I figured that was a really good 80-20. Because I was, you know, was full-time still with my clients as a freelancer, and I wanted to figure out like, how much of my time is this going to take and what's it going to take to run this thing. You know? So it was 47 bucks a month, and I opened the door to 100 people. And uh, to my shock and delight, it sold out within like 48 hours. And uh, wow. um, the, the, the 100 people that came through the door were just these incredibly cool, smart people. Russell Lachlan, Dan Ferrari, uh, Nate Dye, like all these people early in their career. And I was like, who are these people, man? And I only had a list of like 3,000 people then. I was like, I didn't, you know, it was just incredible to find out I had been communicating with these people and they valued my, my stuff. And now to, to be sort of virtually face-to-face -face with them and, and having these incredible conversations was just a mind blower, dude. And then, you know, we started, I was like, oh, I should probably do some trainings. And so I started just doing a training every month and though it turned out I had a lot to teach after, you know, 12 years freelancing and, um, and then just built from there, man. And, uh, six years now, three live events, people come from all over the world to, to be at copy chief live from, from Singapore and Australia and, and the UK. It's, it's just, it's really crazy to, to think about and look back. It, and not only that, but I think you've legit taken people who I'm curious about copywriting, starting with you and who today yeah. are considered Bayless yeah, very guys. Proud very proud of that legacy. It, it's yeah. because, you know, I felt like I was the bridge after a couple of years in copy chief. I'm like, oh man, I'm, I'm the Dave Grohl of copyright <laughs> <You'd>, because <laughs> Dave Grohl is, he's that great bridge. Like, you know, he shows up and he always has the best set of the night. Right. But what's great about Dave is why he's so easy to love is he loves his, the people who inspired him. So he loves to jam with, you know, the legends, but he's um, creating new music and he supports younger upcoming artists too. And so he's this killer bridge between those, those two worlds and sort of like keeping the flame alive. And I felt like that's what I am. I'm, I'm teaching, sure. And maybe I'm like a quote unquote guru in my own right of some sort. But it was my Rolodex was a, a really important part of it in those first few years. I, I could get Carlton on a, a, a training or Deutsch or, or even Paris, people who didn't normally do that kind of stuff. And, and now, like you say, man, I, I love lifting up the new generation on the platform uh, Ian Stanley early in his career was, was in copy. I coached Ian for a while. Uh, you know, guys like Ian, uh, Jimmy Parent, Chris Orzakowski, Abby Woodcock, uh, April Dykeman, you know, a lot, all the Paris's Cubs basically came from copy chief. It's a real honor, man. And, uh, yeah, dude, it's, it, it's, it's been fun. <laughs> it, well, you know, it is fun to live in that world of the both, because living with the legends, you still have the inspiration, but working with the younger generation, you still have the optimism and the hope and the excitement, which I think any career after you've been doing eight, 10 years, it's, it's easy to get cynical and kind of lose sight about just how, how remarkable a, a life you can live sitting behind your computer and typing words. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how amazing something? is that? It is, dude. Don't you think when you're sitting at a, 
one of the things I miss the most in all this is, is coffee shops, just being able to <laughs> just go there and write. And, and I, I, you always have that feeling when you're thousands of copywriters around the world have been totally <laughs> mentally disabled because yeah. they can't go to the coffee shop to write. We're, yeah. We're work homeless now <laughs> office homeless. But um, yeah, the, uh, when you look around, it's not an ego thing, but it's just interesting when you have other people kind of doing work from there. A lot of them are similar stuff, but you're like, if you had any idea what I was getting paid <laughs> to sit here and write this right now. If you had any idea, Kevin, of the strange looks your neighbors give you as you go to the coffee shop <laughs> at 10 in the morning. <laughs> With just your laptop. Yeah, how does he do it? <laughs> well, this has been fantastic. How can people find out more about what you have going on? How can they get involved with Copy Chief? Where, yeah. where, how can they get hold of your books? Yeah, just copychief.com. Just go there. It's all there. Definitely download the 60 Second Sales Hook, which is something I, I created, again, about six years ago that just keeps resonating and working for people. It's really cool. It's a free book. That's a cool way to get a dose of what I do. It, it combines my history in, in comedy with copywriting and gives you some cool writing formulas and that'll put you on my list. And if you like my stuff, you may want to go deeper and uh, otherwise, hopefully you dig what you get for free. So I'm just, I'm here to help. Cool. Well, any, any final words of advice to someone who may just be coming online as a writer today? Yeah, like we said, they try to find a lane and master one thing at a time. Uh, you don't have to learn it all. You will become paralyzed uh, by thinking that you don't know enough or you're not ready to uh, have work and take on clients if you try to be a jack of all trades. And so if you choose a specific thing like Facebook ad copywriting or email copywriting, one of, one of what I call the money skills because they're the most in-demand things. So just get damn good at that one thing. Practice every day, study the right stuff, tune out you, you know, anything that's not lighting you up. And, and then just know that you gotta take the awkward leap. You know, every successful freelancer uh, had to go out and sell themselves. And because we tend to be artistic types, that can feel really unnatural. But I promise you, if you get through that part of it and show some, some classic hustle, uh, and it obviously helps to have a plan, and my program's going to help you. But uh, <laughs> um, you got to well, do just, it. You, you just came up with it. the title for your second book, Take the Awkward Leap. Take the Awkward Leap. There I love you go, that. man. That's love your that. next book. <laughs> well, Kevin, thanks so much for the time. Uh, been very gracious and uh, you've shared some amazing truth bombs with us today. So thank you so much. Thank you, bud. I appreciate it. And good luck with the podcast. Hey, it's Travis Cody. Thanks for listening to The Just Right Show. And I want to make sure you're plugged into everything we've got going on. Go to TravisCody.com forward slash show and join the email list so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Plus, you can find links to the transcripts of every episode we've done in the past. You can also grab a free copy of my best-selling books that share even more details on how you can up-level your own writing skills. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, I'd consider it a personal favor if you'll leave me a review on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.